Has anyone here ever called to the principal's office? Come on, fess up. Hello, good, good. I went to a stuffy grammar school, and um, I was called to the headmaster's office. I'm, I'm not going to tell you how many times. I remember one time um, we knew we were in serious trouble. There were five or six of us, and we had been in a fight. We'd been in a fight in the woods, which was off the school ground, so that was a breach of the rules already. We'd been in a fight with some Catholic students from the Catholic school next door, so that was even worse. A bunch of Protestant boys fighting a bunch of Catholic boys in the woods, and the headmaster demanded to see us. Now, that was in the day of caning, and today we're horrified about that. I'm kind of horrified. I think I was probably marked, probably should be in therapy. I remember this headmaster's cane. Um, it, it was already splintered at the end, and he think he liked it better that way um, because he, he could draw it through the air, and you know it wasn't even being hit just once. It was being hit by all of the splinters at the end of his cane. So as we were going to the headmaster's office, another guy came along, and he said, I will sell you a horse's hair, and if you put the horse's hair in the palm of your hand, let it be in the crease of your palm, and the cane won't hurt. We paid this guy a pound for several horses' hairs to put on the palms of our hands so it wouldn't hurt when the headmaster came flying through the air with his cane to our hands. Horses' hair didn't work. I mean, I've tried spitting and rubbing, and that, that doesn't work. Um, the better thing would be to behave, probably. But uh, that, that didn't occur to me very often. So as you already know, we're talking about someone who had a dreaded meeting like that. Second um, Samuel chapter 9 is just a delightful story, the story of Mephibosheth. And we're going to just sort of you know, poke at it a little bit more this morning and, and see what we can learn in terms of the overarching message of the Bible. Um, all of this comes back to a verse in 1 Samuel, so I'll show you that, and then we'll, we'll read through 2 Samuel chapter 9. Um, this little verse simply says, Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. It's a very simple little sentence that states the fact that Jonathan loved David but the most important part of all of that is that we're told Jonathan made a covenant with David. Covenant is one of those things that is sown through the whole story of the Bible. I have a friend who wrote um, this book, Covenant and Kingdom, the DNA of the Bible. And if anyone wants to take that home, you're very welcome to take it home. Just bring it back when you finish reading it. But his thesis is that Truly the DNA of the Bible, um, that sort of twin strand, um, is made up of covenant and kingdom, and that the whole drama of God's involvement with humankind, the whole drama of the formation of a people and then peoples, all of those things run on the tracks of covenant and kingdom. So this morning I want to just focus on covenant and have us realize, maybe again, or maybe for the first time, how important covenant is. 
And if we grasp it, many parts of the Bible begin to fall into place. For example, when you read Romans or you read Ephesians, um, you are reading material that is really covenant material, uh, not just you know, relational material, not just legal material, but it's, it's material content that is explained by the notion of covenant. So what do we understand about covenant? Covenant um, was the typical way that peoples would relate to each other. We, we would call it legal today, except it had far more sort of depth and, um, and humanness and relationship in it than, than simple case law. Uh, and you know courts and justices and so on. So in, in the ancient Near East, and um, there are great fragments of covenants. Notably, there's the Hittite kind of covenant. You don't need to worry about Hittite, but it just sort of identifies the fact that what we see in in the Old Testament is is patterned virtually exactly after all of the other civilizations' covenants, and the Hittite one just is actually sort of spells it out so we can see. So here's what was involved in a covenant. There would be, and, and this you know, turns into sort of the, the documentation, if you like, of a covenant. There was a historical preamble, and that would say, who are the parties to this covenant? What was their relationship before? Were they allies? Were they enemies? Were they unknown? Which one is the higher party in the covenant? Who's, who is establishing the covenant with whom? So when we're told that Jonathan made a covenant with David, that rings true because David did not have the right to establish a covenant with Jonathan because Jonathan had rank over David. And so because of the friendship that was, was being fostered between the two of them, um, Jonathan could take the initiative and begin a covenant. So even with David and Jonathan, we could think about, well, how did they connect with each other? Um, when did David show up? And what was Jonathan's notion about who David was? After the historical preamble, there were the stipulations that were kind of written into this agreement. If A and B are going to be in a covenant relationship, here are the terms of that relationship. You have to do these things. When we look at the whole history of the Old Testament and the Jewish people, the Decalogue begins to factor in and we understand what kind of a thing the Decalogue is, the Ten Commandments. They are the stipulations. If you're going to be in a relationship with this superior partner, here are the things that you're going to have to do. Then in these usual uh, covenants documents or um, treaties, there would be a calling on the witness of the gods, and that gets transferred over into the, the god language in our understanding um, when we would think that God is my witness um, as, as I enter into this covenant. And then you would have a series of curses and blessings, and, and they're always fun to read. I found a document, it's on my computer if you want to see it, 13 pages long of a treaty um, with full explanation of the curses and blessings that will accrue to someone who either does or does not keep the stipulations that the covenant has, has presented. 
And then there will be sacrifices and oaths. What will we do to celebrate this covenant that we've made? And the, the term to make a covenant um, in Hebrew literally means to cut a covenant. And I've, I've mentioned to you before that that literally was what would happen, that an animal would be cut in half and then the parties to the covenant would walk through the pieces and they would call down the witness of the gods and the typical language would be something like, may the gods do to me and more this cutting the animal in half if I don't keep the terms of the covenant. So it was very serious and it was the means of law, the means of having treaties, the means of having relationships, the means of appeasing, um, you know, conquering kings and armies. Um, and it was all the way through the Bible, something that kind of hung around in the background and explains many, many things that you will be sure to find if you have a look. Let me read to you from Second Samuel chapter 9 as you look at the most important Hebrew word that you will ever learn, and it is this one. You remember what it is, right? Somebody knows it. It's the one you clear your throat with. Chesed. Right? So Bruce Walke was my, one of my professors, and he said, there's only one Hebrew word you really need to know. And that really encouraged me because he knew millions of Hebrew words. But he was saying, you don't have to learn all that stuff. Well, he was kidding. But he was certainly saying that chesed is a very, very important word. And the reason I bring that up now is that even though I'm going to read to you from the, um, the message version, and you will find that Gene Peterson didn't really do a great translation on this passage. It's sad for me to have to say that. But I'll read what he says because it would... It would be more in our vernacular, but just listen to how it sort of misses that chesed is the heart of this whole encounter. So chesed is the word that's translated kindness, loving kindness, grace, mercy, all of those words that kind of roll in together to describe God's disposition, God's covenant loyalty to those that he's in relationship with. So you heard the story from Mary. One day David asked, is there anyone left of Saul's family? If so, I'd like to show him some kindness in honor of Jonathan. Some kindness? Really, Mr. Peterson? I'm going to show him chesed, is what David said specifically. And other translations you will see sort of supply um, God's name in there. And they will say, I'm going to show him God's kindness. So it is not David saying, I'm going to do a little good thing. I'm, not going, or, you know, I'm going to you know, show some favor to this person. David is saying, um, is there anyone left of Saul's family to whom I can show chesed? And then we will discover that it's in honor of Jonathan. We might better say, for the sake of Jonathan. So reaching back to the, the verse we, we saw earlier, Jonathan had established a covenant relationship with David, which David reciprocated. And now all of these years later, David is saying, I'm still responsible for the covenant 
that my friend Jonathan established with me. So, is there anyone left of that dynasty to whom I can show covenant loyalty? Chesed, God's covenant loyalty. It happened that a servant from Saul's household named Ziba was there. They called him into David's presence. The king asked him, are you Ziba? Yes, sir, he replied. The king asked, is there anyone left from the family of Saul to whom I can show some godly kindness? Okay, we're getting a little closer, but again, it's keset. It's, is there anyone left to whom I can show the covenant loyalty of God? Ziba told the king, yes, there is Jonathan's son, lame in both feet. Where is he? He's in the home of Machir, son of Amiel, in Lodabar. King David didn't lose a minute. He sent and got him from the home of Machir, son of Mamiel, in Lodabar. Where's Lodabar? It doesn't matter. Literally. Lodabar means no thing. It was a hideaway place. Um, it was infertile and was thought to be pretty much the ghetto in the kingdom of Israel. So David says, where is this person? And Ziba says, in Lodabar. Why is he in Lodabar? And what are the sort of broad lessons we begin to, to eke out of the fact that he's hiding away in a place where he can't be found, um, a place that has nothing to distinguish it, and he is simply described as someone who is lame in both of his feet. A five-year-old, as Mary said, was dropped by his nurse when they learned that David and Jonathan had been killed. And as she fled, she dropped him. And now we find him probably a teenager, an early teenager. And all of these years, he has known the story of the death of his father and grandfather at the hand of David. He knows that his goose is cooked if he's ever found. Because who's going to leave um, a claimant to the throne who may show up somewhere sometime and raise a rebellion, a mutiny, whatever it is. So in all these years, I, I wonder what, what was in the, the mind and the heart of Mephibosheth. Um, I presume there is both hatred and fear mixed together. Um, there's also um, the fact that every day he has to face the fact that he is injured, he's lame, he's disabled because of David, who is succeeding beyond anyone's wildest dreams at this point as king of Israel. And the day finally comes when he's discovered. Somebody finds him and says, you are to appear before David. Well, what happens is that um, when Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan, came before David, he bowed deeply, abasing himself, honoring David. David spoke his name, Mephibosheth. And if you can just imagine that moment, all of the emotion of these 10, 12 years come rushing front, and he wonders what will David do, or how will David kill him? Um, battles in the day were bloody, and they were dastardly. And he presumes that he now will be meeting his doom. And so David calls him by name, and um, this person who's abasing himself, he's, he's trying to, to, 
just soften the blow in any way that he can. He says, yes, yes, sir, I am Mephibosheth. Don't be frightened, said David. I'd like to do something special for you in memory of your father, Jonathan. Oh, come on. You know what he really said, right? I would like to show God's loving kindness, God's covenant love to you for the sake of Jonathan. That's, that's really quite different. Um, not just I'm going to show some pity, not just, oh, I should be taking your head, but I'm not going to. I'm going to you know, give you a, a, a bone. I'm going to throw it to you. Um, but David says, I'm going to restore to you all the properties of your grandfather's soul. Furthermore, from now on, you'll take all your meals at my table. Um, at this point, you know, maybe Mephibosheth's ears are deceiving him. He, he's expecting the words of his own demise. And this king begins to talk about restoring uh, his, his dynasty somehow or other. Um, and, and then he says the ridiculous thing that I'm going to be invited to eat at his table. Why would he do this? Well, the reason, the heart of the whole story is the chesed love of God, the covenant loyalty that is mirrored in Jonathan and David to the, to the covenant loyalty that God has always had and will always have to his, his covenant people. Um, shuffling and stammering, says I, as I stammer, not looking him in the eye, Mephibosheth says, who am I that you pay attention to a stray dog like me? It's actually dead dog like me. David then called in Ziba, Saul's right-hand man, and told him, everything that belonged to Saul and his family I've handed over to your master's grandson. You and your sons and your servants will work his land, bring in the produce, provisions for your master's grandson. Mephibosheth himself, your master's grandson, from now on, will take all his meals at my table. Ziba, by the way, had 15 sons and 20 servants, who now were in the employ of Mephibosheth. And when, when we note that David says, and he will take his meals at my table, it ought to make us say, why is that important? Well, if you've got 15 plus 20 people at your beck and call, if you're raising produce off of acres and acres and acres of, of fertile land, um, if you have all that you need um, to eat lavish meals however many times a day you want to, why would you be coming to the king's house when you've probably got a house that maybe rivals his house? You have staff that rival his staff. And the king is saying, um, but here's, here's one little fine point. He's going to eat at my table. Um, and once again, when, when we extrapolate this into the story of God's covenant loyalty to us, we, we immediately grasp so much of the teaching of the Bible about the lavish gift of God's love and grace that sort of um, echoes through the New Testament as those writers reflect on it. Um, you know, John says, have, have a look at how great the love of God is that he has poured out on us, that, that we would be called the sons of God, the children of God. 
And the term that he uses when he says, how great is this love of God, it's only one other time in, in the New Testament when Jesus calmed the sea and the disciples said, how great a person is this or what kind of a person is this? Where does this kind of person come from that even the wind and the waves are stilled by his voice? And John says, what kind of love is this? How, how incredible this love is that we would be called the children of God. Uh, and, and so it's uh, in, in the story of David and Mephibosheth, you have a, a heartwarming tale um, that makes, it just sort of makes you say, yeah, yeah. And, and isn't that what God has done for us? Is there yet anyone of the household of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? And when it all works out, David says, by the way, every day when dinner is served, you'll be at my table. Just think about what that does mean. It wasn't a necessary thing for Mephibosheth, but it was restoring Mephibosheth to a place of sheer respect, honor, and deep, deep love. Um, Someone has said that when you sit at the king's table, no one sees your lame legs. No one sees the hurt, the pain, the brokenness, the anger um, that has come along with you. We're all together at the table. The song that we sang is, is, is a great reflection on that. That somehow or other being at table with one another um, is an expression of, of our accepting one another, loving one another. Uh, enemies could not bring their weapons to the table. Um, they couldn't eat and also have a sword and a hammer in their hand. They would leave those behind. Um, when we just track the image of the table and table fellowship, it becomes a characteristic of, of the followers of Jesus that what they normally did, they normally ate together. From, from the very beginning in the, in the stories of Acts, we, we see that day by day, they, they go from house to house. They have, they have food together, and probably in every instance of their having a food together, they would also observe the Lord's Supper. And they would celebrate their unity, their being at table together. And then they would remember that the reason for all of that was the blood of the what? The new covenant, right? So again, is Mike right that um, this is the, the double helix, the, the DNA of the Bible? I, I think it is. Um, that the covenant concept, um, and, and especially the concept that the covenant has been effected by the greatest, greatest powerful um, covenant initiator that there ever has been. And the results of the covenant are more lavish than we could ever possibly imagine. They just they go deeper and deeper and farther and farther. The unsearchable love of God, the, the, there's no end to it. His forgiveness is a... How, how big is his forgiveness? Well, it's, it, our sins have been separated as far as the east is from the west in an, an, an infinite distance. So there's all of that that accrues to the people who have 
been engaged in a covenant with our God. We think far too little of God, both in, in a quantitative, quantitative way as, as, as well as a you know, calendar way. Um, we have anthropomorphized God. We, he has humored us uh, in that he has said, there, there's no way that you would be able to understand what I am or who I am if I were to, if, if I were to just put it out in front of you. So what can I do? I will, I will tell you the best version of it that you could understand by saying something like, I am a father. And I'm offering that to you as a way for you to stretch towards the relationship that you have with me. Is God just a father? Well, he's Abba Father, so indeed he is. But that image of God, if that's all we stay with, isn't enough. Um, he is the one who um, has a fleet of angels who never stop flying back and forward saying, holy, holy, holy. He is holy beyond our grasping. He's better than the best we could ever see. Um, he's purer than, than the purest we've ever experienced. He dwells in unapproachable light. Um, he's, he's the one who called things into existence. Job is a fun read when Job finally gets his audience with God. And God says, okay, let's have a little contest. Where were you when? You know, mumble, mumble, mumble. Can you do this? Mumble, mumble, mumble. And the end of the conversation is Job saying, I'm, I'm an idiot. I spoke. I should not have spoken. Um, because now I, now I see you. Now, now I know who it is that you are. Um, how do we get ourselves to gaze more intently on the person that has started a covenant with us? It begins, I think, by being the Mephibosheth that says, I belong in Lodabar. I, I, I had no hope to get out of Lodabar. Or if I had even been discovered in Lodabar, it would have been my death. When we understand that, that the fallenness of our nature is the kind of fallenness that should exclude us from any relationship with God, there is no reason he should show favor to us. We deserve only to die. We belong to a dynasty that has been overtaken. Um, and yet, what God has done is he has said, okay, Wayne, I want you. Orville, I want you. Ken, I want you. I'll not name everybody in the room. Um, and when we sit at his table... We enjoy the lavish supply of fellowship with one another at his feet, um, in his company. And we gaze more and more into his face to see who is this that has, that has done such a thing. 
David said, is there anyone left of the house of Saul to whom I can show chesed for the sake of Jonathan? God said, is there anyone left in the generations of Adam to whom I can show chesed for the sake of my son? For the sake of my son. And that informs our, our theology in the New Testament so well, doesn't it? That it's because of Jesus that um, we are in Christ. To whom can I show my covenant loyalty for the sake of my son? Well, there are these lost ones, there are these hopeless ones, there are these broken ones, these, there are these rebellious ones. Um, and, and God never says, no, no, not him, not her. It's, God says... My covenant loyalty is huge. It is, it is lavish. Call them all. Tell them all that they can enter my covenant because my son has spent the, the blood. He's, he's the sacrifice um, that we walk through together and we say, here are, here are the terms now that we are in relationship, I will be your covenant God, and will you be my covenant people? Um, then there's the whole swing from the covenant that God's partners failed in, and the new covenant by which God said, "Okay, I'll do I'll do a new thing. I'll forgive your sins, and I'll give you a new heart." Um, it, it's a new covenant. And Jesus, when he offers the bread and the cup, he said, this cup is the new covenant. The new covenant. That means forgiven. That means recreated into the image in which we were first created. That means that we live into a glorious future um, that is all bound up in the loving relationship between God and his son, in which he says, is there anyone left that I can show loyalty for the sake of Jesus, for the sake of my son? Doesn't it just elevate our, our thoughts, our, our, our devotion, our, our um, commitment to both the son and the father? That, that we say, well, God, what did it cost for this covenant? It cost the very life of my son. Why? Because it is in my nature to call people into that kind of a relationship with me, to give them all the stuff that they need, um, to say everything is restored, to say that you're to sit at my table. This is where you belong now. You are my son, my daughter. Um, and, and we just have to marvel and say, and, and, and here's this lamb, here's this lion lamb that we're going to meet someday, and we're going to bow the knee with all creation before him and realize that he's the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And all the while, um, there is God whom, I don't know, do we ever see? Do we ever um, get close to his presence what will all that be like? Look at the universe now. Look at how expansive this universe is. How many um, 
universes there are as as we gaze out and come back to Psalm 8 and say, Lord, when I consider the work of your hands, so by his covenant, by his creation, we say, what, what is man that you should care about him? The son of man. In, in the midst of all of this, is there really only one planet that interests you? Is this whole universe for this one planet? In this whole expanse of universe, your son would come to inhabit one planet? And God would say, if, if you meditate on that, you're beginning to meditate on the vastness of my covenant loyalty. Is there anyone left to whom I can show my kindness for the sake of my son? Why don't we pray? Father, just help us to have glimpses of the enormity of your covenant loyalty to us. Um, help us to grasp better the cost of your son's death. Um, Spirit, affirm in our hearts, confirm in our hearts that, that this audacious claim is true, that you are witnessing with our spirits saying we are the children of God, that yes, we are in this enormous, eternal love relationship with the God of creation um, who has stepped up and said, you're not, you're not the party that can start this. It's up to me. And so I initiate a covenant with you. Father, we pray that you will um, hear the praise of our hearts, of our spirits, um, the delight uh, as as we see ourselves um, as the Mephibosheths in the Lodabars of our day, called to the palace of the king, um, realizing that, that that could be the, the worst moment for us, and yet discovering that, in fact, it's the way that we come home and we come back to you. Father, let us live the kinds of lives that friends um, would observe and say, what is, what is that? That spiritual thing in you, that religious thing. Tell me about it. And we'll thank you in Jesus' name.